my solution is that disability, it has to get woven into standard operating practice. It cannot be a, quote, special concept. And typically, people still see disability as a charity issue. So it's like, okay, they throw money at us, kind of like the telethon. They throw money at us for a day, then they expect us to go back in our closets until the next telethon. Well, things are changing. It is getting better, I will say, but the workplace, you know, is still tough. There are companies that see the value of people with disabilities as both a diversity dimension, and there are companies who also see us as an amazing marketing opportunity and good business. I mean, if you take Apple, for example, they have made their products accessible to a variety of disabilities. So the iPhone, it has the capacity to be made accessible to a number of different types of disabilities. Everybody's iPhone. So they've woven the accessibility into their product. It is not, quote, special. And people use the blueberry muffin analogy a lot. So if you have blueberry muffins, you can't add blueberries at the end, right? You have to bake it in. So if we think about the workplace, you have to bake in accessibility from the development and design phase as well as have other aspects of disability be a part of workplace experience. I'm your host, Michelle King, joined by Kelly Thompson, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. The social model of disability, which is a way of viewing the world developed by people with different mental and physical abilities, holds that society disables physically impaired people by assuming that everyone experiences life in the same way. By not accounting for people's differences, one of which is physical impairments, we inadvertently exclude people from fully participating in day-to-day activities. This can include structural barriers, like not having access to handicap-accessible toilets or social barriers, like holding negative attitudes and behaviours towards people with impairments. When it comes to disability rights, the shift that each of us can make is from viewing people as disabled by their differences to being disabled by the barriers they encounter in society. By viewing disability in this way, we can begin to tackle ableism and start to identify all the barriers that prevent people with impairments from having equal opportunities in life. Over 50 million Americans live with disabilities, and the disability rights movement is focused on providing these individuals with equal rights and equal opportunities. In today's episode, we're joined by Kathy Martinez, an internationally recognized disability rights leader and President and CEO of Disability Rights Advocates, a United States nonprofit legal center that works to advance disability rights. Kathy is the former SVP and head of Disability and Accessibility Strategy for Wells Fargo. Kathy was born blind along with her sister and has been an advocate for people with disabilities for most of her career. Today, along with Kathy, we will unpack how the disability rights movement is working to remove the institutional, physical, and societal barriers that people with disabilities face. We will also share specific actions that each of us can take to ensure we create a society where people with disabilities are free to live their lives just like anyone else. 
Globally, one billion of us experience some form of disability. According to the CDC, this includes as many as one in four people in the United States. Yet we still see discrimination against the disability community show up in all walks of life. And it's not always deliberate or explicit. There's also a more insidious form of prejudice, which in many ways is baked into our societies and cultures and needs deliberate, intentional action to unpick. Ableism is discrimination and social prejudice against people with disabilities or people who are perceived to be disabled. According to Access Living, at its heart, ableism is rooted in the assumption that disabled people require fixing and it defines people by their disability. Like racism and sexism, ableism classifies entire groups of people as less than and includes harmful stereotypes, misconceptions and generalizations of people with disabilities. Whether conscious or not, the impact of ableism is often far-reaching. An ableist approach leads to a society with all manner of practical barriers, like buildings which are designed without incorporating accessibility, where braille on signs is conspicuous by its absence, and websites which are inaccessible to many. And ableism also presents as damaging assumptions that people with disabilities wish for a cure or need to be fixed. Here, Kathy shares examples of how ableism shows up in everyday life. Disability can be situational. And I think if people think about it this way, it would bring a lot more people under the tent. I hate to use this crass example, but I've been in restaurants where the crawl on the TV goes out and, you know, people are just in a fit. And that is not serious. But what if the crawl was about emergency preparedness? You have to think about it as things that were invented for people with disabilities, like the crawl on the bottom of the TV that says, you know, sports scores and news highlights was typically invented for people who are deaf. We have to acknowledge that disability is a natural part of the human condition. And I know that when I was at the Department of Labor, we ended up hiring more people with disabilities. And when I went to Wells Fargo after the Department of Labor, what do you start with? You start with perfectly accessible technology and physical buildings, or do you start by bringing people in and they're having to kind of demand accessibility? I don't know the answer to that. I guess my point is that everybody requires some sort of accommodation right? I mean, as a sighted person, you just depend on the fact that things are going to be accessible to you, right? So you can read the signage, you can open up an app on your phone, and the expectation is that it will work and it will serve your needs. You know, people don't realize that those are accommodations. The fact that they are standard operating practice in a workplace is true. They assume that they'll have chairs. You know, they assume that they'll have a desk or lighting. I think that First of all, as a business, the workplace has to realize that the disability community offers so much. We are very strategic. We are amazing problem solvers because the world has not been built for us. So we have to be strategic. We have to be really good problem solvers. The 2010 U.S. Census reported that 22.2% of African-Americans 14.5% of Asian people, 17.8% of the Hispanic community, and 17.6% of non-Hispanic white people have a disability. But these numbers don't illustrate the real-life impact of intersectional identities. The HSS Advisory Committee on Minority Health say that people with disabilities who are members of a racial or ethnic minority group are living with a double burden. The impacts of this are stark. 
For example, African-Americans with Down syndrome are more than seven times as likely as our white Caucasians to die by age 20. To address these specific challenges, it's important for leaders and organisations to understand how the intersection of different identities can create particular experiences of inequality for a person with disabilities. Here, Cathy shares more on this. If you look at the statistics, you will see people of colour experience much higher rates of disability for many reasons, because of poverty, because of high injury jobs, because of HIV, bad health care, hypertension, you know, diabetes. I mean, there's so many reasons. I really believe that there is a hierarchy still and disability is in last place. There's some work being done with the NASDAQ to try to get them to people of color and LGBTQ to include disability as a dimension of diversity to be included on their boards. Disability must be woven into the diversity agenda. It cannot be separate. It is so critical to people of color and women. Women are more often caretakers, not always, like my brother, he takes care of my mom, but Very often, you know, women are caregivers, I should say, not caretakers, caregivers. And I think we experience disability in many ways more than men, you know, being caregivers, you know, in the health professions, in the types of jobs that women take. It's really important to weave disability into the diversity agenda from the ground up, because when anything's bolted on, it can be quickly tossed off into the junk pile or kick to the curb or whatever analogy you want to use, then people have to start all over again. That's the sad part. So you're constantly in the startup phase. You're not moving to a maintenance phase. (laughs) You know, you're maintaining accessibility. But when you weave it into your overall diversity agenda, then it's part of the DNA. All too often, companies approach disability inclusion in a tokenistic way highlighting and showcasing employees with different physical and mental abilities without really investing to understand how to create an environment that meets the different needs we all have. Here, Kathy shares why mainstreaming disability inclusion into the way workplaces work is the key to tackling ableism. My solution is that disability, it has to get woven into standard operating practice. It cannot be a, quote, special concept. And typically, people still see disability as a charity issue. So it's like, okay, they throw money at us, kind of like the telethon. They throw money at us for a day, then they expect us to go back in our closets until the next telethon. Well, things are changing. It is getting better, I will say. But the workplace, you know, is still tough. There are companies that see the value of people with disability as both a diversity dimension, and there are companies who also see us as an amazing marketing opportunity and good business. I mean, if you take Apple, for example, they have made their products accessible to a variety of disabilities. So the iPhone, it has the capacity to be made accessible to a number of different types of disabilities. Everybody's iPhone. So they've woven the accessibility into their product. It is not, quote, special. And people use the blueberry muffin analogy a lot. So if you have blueberry muffins, you can't add blueberries at the end, right? You have to bake it in. So if we think about the workplace, you have to bake in accessibility from the development and design phase, as well as have other aspects of disability be a part of workplace experience. So there's physical access. Can you get in the building? 
Can you find your way up to, you know, the 28th floor? There's all kinds of things. Can you get your own coffee? Do, do you have a, an accessible workstation? Do you have a screen reader that you need? And then there's digital access. Are your online and mobile apps accessible? What about these big HR apps like Workday and travel apps like Concur? These are apps that many, many big workplaces use. Is anybody talking to them about making them accessible from the back end so they can be configured from the front end and people with disabilities can use these apps or people like me who use screen readers can do their jobs? We all deserve to work in a workplace that values us just as we are. While mainstreaming disability inclusion is critical, the real aim is to ensure that we value the unique contributions of people with disabilities. This is a quality, to know that your differences are not barriers to be overcome, but rather your differences are what make you remarkable. then there's the cultural aspect, right? At Wells Fargo, we worked very hard, but the cultural aspect was really critical because A, talking about a variety of disabilities, not just blindness. I did not want to be the only spokesperson around disability for the bank. It would have been very easy to become a token, but both the bank and me realized it was a bad idea because you only get one point of view. So in our various panels and internal fireside chats and opportunities to hear about people's lived experience, we did really promote speakers with a variety of disabilities. First, it was really hard to find people because nobody wanted to come out. It's like, you know, the LGBTQ community. A lot of people with non-evident disabilities don't need to come out and they're scared to come out. And there's a good reason for that. But eventually, you know, over the years, we did find people who were willing to talk about mental disabilities, about other types of disabilities besides blindness, because, you know, everybody heard from me, they were sick of hearing from me. My job was to promote conversations that that made people feel safe. We started a community of practice, recruitment, retention, and promotion. And we had a lot of, of hiring managers from different lines of business join. And, you know, that was a great opportunity for them to ask questions, to feel safe, what can you ask in an interview? You know, how do you get my team to, you know, accept or to bring in a person with a disability? Questions that everybody wants to know, but scared to ask because people are afraid to make a mistake. They're afraid to be politically incorrect. So the cultural aspect is really important and not just during National Disability Month, right? It has to happen like 25-8, as they say, (laughs) 24-7. And so that was a big deal. Like whenever you have people with disabilities mixing it up with non-disabled people, people can see that you're part of the team. I know that I brought good things to my team. And there's other things that I could not do and I would get help. I think if you look at it as I could help colleague do X and they could help me do Y, and that happens all the time in the workplace. It just is more codified when it involves a person with a disability. Finally, Kathy shares why leaders are critical to removing the barriers that people with disabilities face at work. When leadership embraces this and really does not just look good, but actually do good, first of all, you've got to have the tone from the top. Leadership support is really important because what happens with difference is very often it is led by one very strong person. And it is not woven into the fabric or the DNA of the company. So when that person leaves, all the projects fall apart. I can tell you what not to do. 
please don't make it personality-based. Think about accessibility like security. Security is not personality-based. It is a business imperative. Weaving accessibility into your business, both physically, online, and, and mobile, and culturally, is a business imperative. It's not just about the right thing to do. Of course, it's the right thing to do, but it's more than that. You know, the right thing to do gets dismissed when budget cuts happen. I always used to say, we can't put disability on the special shelf because what happens is when the budgets get lean, immediate thought is, well, then we don't need to do this. This is a nice to have. It's not a a need to have. And so I think companies that really have woven disability or accessibility and difference into their DNA are the companies where if a leader leaves, it's going to stay as part of their standard operating practice. It's not going to disappear. But so often we've seen disability have great momentum and then that leader will leave and it'd be like, oh, wow, now what? Now who do we talk to? I really think leadership is a big part of it. We can all play a role in making our workplaces environments where everyone can thrive. Here are three actions we can take. First, think about whether your workplace is accessible. Can everyone access the building and move around without barriers? Companies can also make real progress here by thinking about accessibility as a broader, ongoing practice. That includes looking at everything from recruitment processes to sickness policies and appraisals and checking whether they present barriers for people with disabilities. Employers can also identify innovative ways to reach and attract talented potential recruits in the disability community. Second, most disabilities are not visible, which is something we can account for when tackling ableism. In fact, 88% of disabilities are not visible. Despite increased awareness and education, there's a pervasive stigma surrounding many disabilities that people cannot see, such as mental illness. It's because of a fear around this stigma that many people with non-visible disabilities don't disclose them to their employer. Companies can take steps to bridge this gap by proactively asking all employees to share any adjustments and accommodations the business can make and by providing a safe space for that discussion. Third, one area we can each make a big difference is by becoming aware of our own biases when it comes to people with disabilities or with disabilities other than our own. Unchecked biases and assumptions can lead to patronising behaviour towards others, like when someone pushes a person in a wheelchair without their permission, assuming that they need the assistance. We can all watch out for ableism in both the language we use or in what we hear, like calling something lame or saying, I'm just a bit OCD, to describe a preference towards tidiness. Ableist language can perpetuate a negative view of our individual differences. So becoming aware of the words we speak is a great way to start being more inclusive. Before you go, just a quick reminder to check out 100 Actions for Equality campaign which provides 100 actions that you can take every day to create a more equal working world. Just visit 100actionsforequality.com. Thank you for tuning in to our episode today. If you're interested in partnering with us or being a guest on the show, then please reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.